Hello, hello, hello. I'm Aaliyah and this is Netflix Coffee and Questioning Humanity. Today's episode is a deep dive. We are doing a total focus episode about the hottest show on Netflix right now, Shadow and Bone. I have been so excited for this show since it was announced. I personally have never read the books, not fully anyway, so I don't really count it. And I'll get into why shortly, But Lee Bardugo, the writer of this series, is a legend in the YA or young adult world for her Grishaverse series. And I don't know the technicalities, but she also has a duology, uh, including Six of Crows. I don't know if that's in the Grishaverse. I know that it technically exists within the Grishaverse, but I don't know if the fans and stands say Grishaverse for all of it. So I don't want to upset you folks. But Six of Crows is sprinkled into this show that is all about Shadow and Bone, which is super interesting. They are both both beloved, both stories, both storylines are beloved, the Grishaverse and the Six of Crows duology. Shadow and Bone, to my understanding, is more on the younger side of YA, so it's the Y, and Six of Crows is more of the adult side of YA. Personally, I know it's sacrilege, don't, don't, don't come for me, but I could not get into Six of Crows. I just couldn't. Don't yell at me. I'm currently reading the Fifth Wave series as an aside, and it's pretty much my favorite series favorite book of all time. I'm on the infinite sea, so I'm only on the second out of three. I know I'm late on the bandwagon, but if you haven't read the trilogy, I highly recommend it. It's beautiful. But and however, we are here for Shadow and Bone. So let's roll the sirens and get into it. Friendly reminder that this is an explicit podcast, which means I may discuss explicit content while most certainly using explicit language. So even though this is a TV 14 show, I say rated R words. So little ears, those easily offended, and my mom and dad may want to bow out. This is a double siren warning because I'm also going to discuss spoilers. Yes, I know. How? In a deep dive talking about spoilers? Who knew? So if you have not stepped foot into the Grishaverse yet, but you you want to, please stop right here and put on a different episode of Netflix Coffee and Questioning Humanity because this is not the one for you. Everything will be spoiled. And now on with the show. So today we are getting a little crazy because the butter pecan flavor, a fan fave, is back at Dunkin'. It's one of my favorite flavors too. They just switch up the name a little bit every year. Kind of like what Taco Bell does. You know, they have like the same eight fucking ingredients, but they (laughs) call it something different. They just switch around the ingredients a little bit, add like insane amounts of cheese and suddenly it's a fan favorite. Maybe sprinkle some fucking Doritos on it. That's how you capture America's attention, baby. Doritos. Anyway, it's now a signature latte, which by looking at it here, I'm assuming it just means that's a fancy latte. I got a signature latte. God, this was maybe a year ago. And the girl literally was like, nah, I can't get that for you. I don't know how to make it. What? (laughs) What? I was like, girl, it's on the menu. What do you mean you don't know how to make it? But I'm like, not the type to get pressed about that stuff. I was like, all right, well, let's talk this through. Let's figure it out together. I think it was actually the caramel craze signature latte. Girl, just throw in a couple pumps of caramel. Surprise me with another flavor that you think will taste good. Throw on some whipped cream and a little bit more caramel drizzle on the top and we'll call it a day. I'll pay for it like a signature latte. It's called butter pecan sundae. I have no idea how that will change the flavor, but we finna find out. Okay, so just some background information. I get oat milk. 
because my life is a cruel joke and I'm extremely lactose intolerant and the older I get, the more intolerant my stomach gets. So oat milk has been a lifesaver. It's delicious. I don't really like almond milk. So I got this with oat milk and because I got it with oat milk, I know that oat milk is already pretty sweet. So I asked for one less pump of the butter pecan flavoring, whatever they add to it. This is still way too sweet. I'm not gonna be able to finish this, but it looks really fancy. They have whipped cream coming out of the cap <laughs> and it's covered in sprinkles and I'm pretty sure I got a bit of sprinkle within the coffee. Um, I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack if I finish this drink, but it's decent. It's all right. I don't, I don't think I'll get this again, but it's all right. It'll do for now a couple sips. I'm already pretty hyped about this shadow and bone shit. So this is probably a good sign. I don't need like a sugar high on top of it. Okay, thirst is quenched. Butter pecan Sunday signature latte acquired. Let's talk some shadow and bone. So just to give you a brief overview of what this is going to look like, I am going to recap episodes one through three. I'm going to do the remainder of the episodes in a separate episode of mine, if you can follow that. I don't want to overwhelm you. I'm also going to discuss the world that it takes place in, the Grishaverse, which is going to take some time. So I was like, I'll just do the explanation and then I will do three episodes and then we'll pause, take a break, and I'll release another episode with the next few episodes after. And that way, if you haven't finished the show, if you're only on episode three, nothing gets spoiled beyond that. So I feel like it's a good trade-off. So when I say I'm going to discuss the Grishaverse or the world that it takes place in, that will include the magic system and all the details that can feel a bit confusing. I know that I personally was like, what the fuck? There are a lot of words, a lot of things, a lot of names. And And I needed to kind of break it down for myself anyway. So I was like, cool, well, why don't I just do it for the podcast? Again, I am a novice. I don't know every detail about Shadow and Bone. Feel free to correct me. I will share that correction. All right, I'm gonna read this from Refinery29 because they did such a great job at breaking down the episodes. And then I will give my thoughts, obviously. Shadow and Bone takes place in a fictional world where magic known as small science is rare but real and has inadvertently led to a state of constant more. As we learn in the first episode, it all started hundreds of years ago when a Grisha, aka people with magical abilities, known as the Black Heretic, used his power to control the shadows to create the Fold, which is a large sea of black clouds, and home of carnivorous creatures that kill most who venture inside. The Fold splits the nation of Ravka in two, creating East and West Ravka, and led to war between Ravka, the neighbors to the north, the Fjorda, and the southern nation of Shuhan. It is believed that the only thing that can tear down the fold is a sun summoner, which is a Grisha who can manipulate light. Unfortunately, a sun summoner has not existed in hundreds of years. In fact, our protagonist Alina and her friends are convinced it's more of a fairy tale than anything else. Alina is a map maker for Ravka's first army. We'll get into what a first army is, don't worry. Who happens to be half Shu. Again, as we said, the nation of Shuhan, that's south of Ravka. So she's half Shu from Shuhan. She is an orphan and she's been shunned her entire life by most everyone except her best friend Mao, who was also multiracial and an outsider. The two grew up in an orphanage. Both their parents died in the fold and have been inseparable ever since. Until an unexpected revelation changes everything. That's the description right there. And just at that, you might be like, wow, that's Ravkashu, Sun Summoner, and a fold? Lots of things, right? So I'm going to break it down to the best of my abilities. I'm no expert, but I thought it would be fun to kind of figure it out together. And I hope 
hope I do it clearly and concisely so that you can understand as well. Because once you do, the world that Lee Bardugo created, this Grishaverse, is so absolutely mind-boggling. This is insane world building. I believe the fictional world known as Ravka, which I believe is based on 19th century Russia, and their neighbors to the north, as we mentioned, the Firda, I believe are like Scandinavian, and the southern nation of Shuhan is like China, Mongolian. So if you think of it that way, it kind of gives you an idea of the inspiration behind the cultures and the names, etc. Let's get into this magic system. I learned so much and had so much clarified from a YouTube channel named Memo Death Books, and he talked all about the Grisha magic system. This was definitely a handful to learn, for me at least. I know there are bigger and more complex magic systems out there for sure, no doubt about that, but sometimes it's like you're just thrown into a world and you're like, what the fuck is going on, <laughs> you know? So as I mentioned, Grisha is a name given to magic users in this world, especially and Ravka. Some, like the Fjordans of the north, consider them witches and have a specific army called the Druskela to kill Grisha. Now in Ravka, they have two armies, like we mentioned. The first army, which is made up of humans, and the elite, aka Grisha magic users, are a part of the second army. And from what I understand, the humans are on the front line. They're sort of the bitches. But again, that's just my interpretation. I don't know if that's like how Lee Bardugo meant for it to be. Each Grisha has a sort of subset with colorings that I will also dive into and the magical abilities I have seen so far. The magic itself, as I mentioned in the description, is not considered magic by Grisha at all because it's not coming from nothing. It's forming things out of matter through hand manipulation, and they call this small science. I believe there are two exceptions to this, though, although I'm not quite sure. Nichevoya and Volkra, those are the shadow creatures created by a dark summoner. The hand thing, like I mentioned, manipulating things with the hands, it's important because that means Grisha can't perform small science if their hands are tied or separated to some degree, which we do see within the show. Children in Ravka, I don't know about other parts of the world in the Grishaverse, but in Ravka, they are tested at a young age for powers, and if they exhibit any, they are taken away to be trained. Grisha abilities can also be amplified through, well, amplifiers, that's what they're called. They can't be taken or stolen, though. They have to be earned in order to be used properly. And then there's also something called stimulants, which give them better control of their powers, but these can cause serious harm and can even be addicting, so they aren't really worth using. They seem kind of like the equivalent to drug use. Again, that's just my interpretation. Moving forward into the ranking system of Grisha. This is where it gets a little bananas, a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Stay with me here. Deep breath in, out, okay? I don't wanna lose you here. We're gonna start from the highest rank to the lowest rank. So we're gonna make a mental picture of this. The highest rank is the corporal key, which is known as the order of the living and the dead. Each rank of these has a different color kefta and a kefta is essentially just a magical coat. They wear red keftas and they focus mostly on the body. Within the corporal key, there are heart renders, big time damage doers. They force choke, damage organs, slow your pulse, change your moods, and can also change your healing process. So those heart renders, big deal big bad boo-boos. Then on the opposing end of that, we have healers and they do what their name suggests. They heal wounds and bones. Then we have a fun one. We have tailors and they can change your appearance. They're basically your plastic surgeon and makeup artists in a magical Grisha small science way. Then in the top tier, we also have shadow summoners who gather and manipulate darkness and shadows. And then we have sun summoners who have the ability to bend and summon light. They can also summon heat 
from the sun as well. Now these two should be in the next category, which you will hear are the summoners. But these bad boy elite summoners are so good and so wild and crazy that they are top tier. The sun and shadow summoners, I believe their kefta color is black. I know the shadow summoner is. And he wants Alina to wear it, but she wears blue instead, which is the color of the ethereal key. They wear blue keftas. And the embroidery is different for every job. Like the heart renders will have a different embroidery. The healers will have a different embroidery, etc., etc. But I'm not getting getting into embroidery colors. We don't, it, we're not taking a dive to the bottom of the ocean. It's a deep dive, but we're, we're not going that deep. I don't think anyone cares about the embroidery, but if you do, it is available heavily online. Then we have the middle tier, the ethereal key, the order of the summoners, not sun or shadow summoners, but other summoners. Summoners, summoners, summoners. When you say it a million times over like this, it sounds very bizarre. Summoners. Now the easiest way for me anyway, to think of this was sort of like avatar. It's elemental magic. There's fire, the inferni. They summon combustible gases and make sparks to make fire. So again, it's not from nothing. They're summoning things that already exist and then they manipulate it. Then there are tide makers who summon and manipulate water. And then there are squallers who are your airbenders essentially, and they change the air pressure and basically throw shit. And finally, we have the material key, the order of the fabricators. They wear purple keftas. And a fun fact, keftas are bulletproof. And that is thanks to duras. Duras alter materials like the kefta to make it bulletproof. So that's what they do. And then there's alchemy, the other subset, and they develop potions and explosives kind of like the name implies. I think that's good enough for background before we get into episode one. I'm going to clarify as we go through each episode as well if there's any weird side notes or things that can be confusing or just my thoughts in general. Episode one titled A Searing Burst of Light. Here's how it goes. We go into the fold. It gets dark but we like it dark. That keeps us from drawing attention. That's how we travel. The only light we use is the blue one at the mast. It's weak, but safe. But you're an inferno, right? So why are you here if we're supposed to keep things dark? But when the dark comes to keep you... We start the episode in East Ravka, where Alina and her unit in the First Army are traveling towards the fold. She and her fellow cartographers, map makers, arrive at the coastal army camp in Kribsburg. She arrives at a coastal army camp, where she reunites with Mao, who is a tracker with the First Army and enjoys earning a little extra money on the side by boxing. Mao's the bad boy. They're expecting to be together for a while, as their units have been paired up to go through the mountains. But things take a turn when Mal is chosen to go on a special mission into the Fold. The Fold, again, dark, scary place filled with shadow monsters. People die. Why the fuck would anyone go into that big, dark ball of bullshit and fuckery, you ask? Well, the Ravkin army crosses the Fold to trade supplies with West Ravka. Sometimes the trips are successful, but many times they are not. And Mal's assignment might very well mean certain death. Oh yeah, and he's set to leave the next day. As if things couldn't get any worse... Later that night, Alina is refused food because she is half Shu. Again, from Shuhan. She grew up in Ravka, but she looks Shu, as she mentioned at the beginning of the episode. And why are the Shu so highly disliked? They are known for their scientific advancements through the arguably inhumane treatment of the Grisha. Mal, always looking after Alina, decides to sneak into a tent of the Second Army, or like we said, the Grisha Army. Because of their powers and status, the Second Army gets fresh fruit and good lodging and good vibes 
vibes, they get the Mariah Carey green room, whereas the first army gets a porta potty. So Mal goes in trying to steal some grapes for Alina because she's hungry. She hasn't had food. And then we meet Zoya, who is a Grisha who can manipulate air. Again, our airbenders are called squalors. She catches up with him and tries to tap that, but he'd rather be with Alina. Romance, anyone? So Mal meets up with Alina. They start chewing on the grapes. Alina is begging Mal, don't go on the mission into the fold, but he must, of course. He promises he'll make it back to her and it looks like they might kiss, but no, you're not getting a kiss in episode one. He stops short at anything romantic, so no romance for you. Very confusing. Mal gives us mixed signals. The next morning, Alina realizes she can't stop Mal from going on the mission, but and however, she decides she's just gonna go with him instead. Secretly, she burns the maps of the coast of West Ravka so that the supply ship is forced to take on some cartographers. She expects it's just going to be her that's going, but no, her whole unit is reassigned. Way to go, Alina. Put everyone's life at risk. By the time Alina gets onto the boat, Mal is not happy. He's like, you better get off, but Mal can't stop her. They already started trudging on. And this is where I thought I legit clicked the finale on accident. I was like, is this episode one? Like we're going into the fold now? We're doing that now? The boat moves through the fold with the help of a squalor who boosts the wind into the sails. Very creative, very resourceful. A few more Grisha are on board, including an Inferni who we know can manipulate fire. And the Grishas set the rules. Everyone must be quiet for the journey and are under strict instructions to not light any lanterns. The only light they have is from one blue lantern and that is meant to keep them safe as the audio clip suggests. My question is why do you even have lanterns? Like why, why? The fold is pitch black. The only light comes from the occasional burst of lightning and it's also very quiet. The only sounds are distant animal cries from the Volcra, which again are dragon-like creatures. They fly through the air of the fold and they can attack at any moment. And uh, they do. Blue Lantern goes out and one of the soldiers lights a fucking lantern. Didn't I just say you shouldn't have lanterns aboard? Didn't I just say that because of this one fuck nut? As if the Inferni Grisha lady didn't just say they like the dark. It keeps them flying under the radar. Thus does not attract Volcra and thus doesn't get them fucking killed. Alas, the lantern attracted the Volcra. Soon they're everywhere. Boom, bang, bang. They're killing the Inferni, flying off with soldiers left and right. It's a crazy scene. One soldier is terrified and jumps off the ship and just starts running. He just starts booking it. Meanwhile, Mal is grabbed by a Volcra, but he manages to fight back. Alina shoots the Volcra and Mal falls back onto the ship, but he's injured. She runs over to him and then the Volcra grabs her. In that moment, I was like, oh, okay, this this is getting crazy. She has to do something. In that moment, she's staring at Mal, holding his hands for dear life. And then suddenly her entire body erupts in light. Here we go. This, I was confused. I was like, I don't think I like this. We're losing our protagonist already. What the fuck is going on? How does this make any sense? Where do we go from here? Everything just happened in episode one. (laughs) But alas, the episode itself was not even over. On the shores of West Ravka, soldiers await the arrival of the supply ship. It's two hours late and seems to be a lost cause. And then in the distance, a Ravkin soldier runs out of the fold, fainting on the ground. Meanwhile, the rest of the ship was somehow propelled back to the East Ravkin shore. I would imagine a squalor did that. I don't believe it was ever explained. That's the only reasonable explanation I could personally come up with. Alina and Mal lay injured on the deck side by side. And then we head over to the island of Kerch, where we meet the crows. And this is where the Six of Crows book is sprinkled 
sprinkled in. The crows consist of criminal mastermind Kaz, gunslinger Jesper, who will be everyone's favorite. Also, I noticed he seems to have some like Grisha-esque ability, maybe? Or he's just like that bitch with the gun. But honestly, like, I don't know. It seems magical to me. Maybe I'm way off. I don't know. And then we have Inej, an indentured slave who is contracted by Kaz for her expert tracking skills and sick knife game. Kaz runs a casino in Ketterdam. And Ketterdam is a town run by gangs. It's kind of like the Wild West. It's technically a part of Ravka, but because of the fold, it is separated from the country's capital and palace of the king. One night, Kaz hears of an offer. A wealthy merchant is looking for a team to cross the fold into East Ravka and retrieve something and he's willing to pay handsomely. The only problem is Kaz and his crew are not the only ones who know about this job. Pekka Rollins, which is arguably the greatest name to ever exist in the entire universe, is a rival gang leader who has had a past with Kaz and he's also desperate to get the contract. Also something to note, money in this world is called Krug and the wealthy merchant is offering a million Krug to the crew that can retrieve it. He also is in need of a heart render service which becomes the key to winning that job. They discover that the heart render is for extracting information from a prisoner. And something very interesting heart renders can also do is manipulate people to tell the truth. And that prisoner is one of the cartographers Alina condemned by burning the maps back at the base camp. The crow's part in the story is taking place two weeks after the Volcra attack. That's something really important to note. It is not all happening at the exact same time. The heart render lowers his heart rate to calm him and recounts witnessing Alina bring the big light show and thus implying she's the fabled sun summoner, the one with the power to destroy the fold, is alive in East Ravka, and then Dreesen shoots him. So now Kaz, Anej, and Jesper have until morning to prove to the merger that they have a way across the fold and win the contract to kidnap Alina Starkov. That's essentially the first episode. Episode two, we're all someone's monster. That's how you survive, by being overlooked, but by making them look knowing you're powerful. I've survived long enough without protection. Thank you. In a flashback, we learn that Alina and Mal were meant to be tested to see if they were Grisha as children. But when Mal was injured and couldn't participate, Alina decided to hide from the testers so that they could stay together. In the present, an injured Mal is taken to a medic in the first army camp on the coast of the fold, while Alina is taken to a healer. So this was sort of my first taste of, oh, Grisha's get special treatment because Mal just went to some rinky-dink medic. And here we have newly discovered Sun Summoner Grisha Alina going to a healer. After being healed, Alina is brought to General Kirigan, who is waiting for her. And Kirigan is essentially numero uno Grisha. He's the big bad boss. He's a shadow summoner. And just so you know, he has the same power as the black heretic who we know, as we mentioned earlier, created the fold. He confronts Alina about her powers, but she's still in denial. So he cuts her arm and the entire tent watches as a beam of blinding light comes out of her. And it's true, she's the sun summoner. Before Alina can even process, her new Grisha identity, she's whisked away and taken to the little palace, which is where Grisha train under the eyes of Kirigan and the king. She doesn't even have a chance to say goodbye to Mal, which we see in a very sad, heartbreaking scene. All the emotions. She's stuck in a carriage with two Grisha and she learns a little bit more about her new life. Her guards tell her that Grisha were hunted and now they're feared. And if she proves herself as the sun summoner, they'll protect her because she's the only one with a shot at taking down the fold. During their ride to the little 
palace, they're attacked by a group of Fjordans. They manage to kill a few of the Grisha and the guardsmen, and one of them almost gets to Alina, but then Kirigan shows up and uses his shadow magic to literally fucking cut this man in half. Now that the two of them are alone, he attempts to bond with Alina, telling her that she'll always be a target, but she's not alone, and he tells her together they can destroy the fold. At the little palace, Alina has an entire bedroom to herself, complete with a closet full of clothes and a luxurious bathroom. She's very pretty woman in this moment. Just because it's gorgeous, that doesn't mean she's safe. She actually sleeps with a letter opener under her pillow. And the whole time she's just missing Mal. Back in Ketterdam, Kaz is desperate to find a way across the fold, but Inej has another problem. She is still the property of Helene, the Madame of the Menagerie. And basically she's just been rented out by the brothel to Kaz. She won't be allowed to leave Ketterdam without Helene's blessing. And Kaz has been paying off her debt slowly, but he doesn't have enough to buy her freedom outright yet. Strangely, when Inej goes to Helene that night, she's surprised to hear that Helene already knows about the job and she has a proposition for her. She'll settle Inej's debt if Inej kills a man for her. She implies that the man is nothing but a human trafficker like the one who sold Inej and hands her an address where he can be found. Now Inej does not kill. It's against her religion, but with no other options, she has to head to the address. Across town, Kaz identifies a woman from East Ravka gambling in his club and he questions her. He doesn't want to get her in trouble, he says. He just needs to know how she managed to make it across the fold. She doesn't know much, but she has a name, the conductor. And luckily, Kaz's hunt for the conductor leads him right to Inej and the man she's just about to kill. They can't kill the conductor, which means Kaz will have to come up with something else to barter for Inej's freedom. So Kaz offers Helene the deed to the Crow Club, saying he'll either pay her in full for Inej after they're done, or she'll just get the club for good. And this is a pretty sweet deal for Helene. I have to say the conductor was probably my least favorite character throughout the series. I don't know, there was something about him. I'm not gonna spoil anything past episode three, but man, I really fucking dislike the conductor. Moving on to episode three, the making at the heart of the world. We do not conjure from nothing, we manipulate that which already exists around us. You make it sound so easy. Bird makes flight look easy, but it was born to do so. Ready. In episode three, we start to see Alina in a completely new world. She wakes up in the little palace. She writes a letter to Mal and tells him that her whole world has changed. And I have to tell you, this is really when the crow storyline is just so not interesting to me. I feel like it's completely the opposite for everyone else. So in West Ravka, we have Inej, Kaz, and Jesper, and they're preparing to cross the fold. Kaz asks the conductor about a heart render named Nina, who will be helpful to them. But we cut to Nina getting captured by the Druskella. And the crows don't learn about this until they are supposed to meet up with her. And the Druskella is a Fjordan army specific to capturing Grisha because they think they are witches. Regardless of the obstacles in their way, Kaz wants to press on. The conductor wants them all to get some items ready for the journey, which is coal and a And then we get to see Jesper being Jesper, which is super awesome. I love Jesper, and I think everyone falls a little bit more in love with him in this episode. Eventually, they reach a train, but as they begin their journey, they are under attack. The conductor seems confident, though, and gets them moving. Now, switching gears back to the little palace, we see Alina meeting with the king, and oh yeah, a massive audience, and there's tons of anticipation, and Alina is just not confident at all. General Kirigan asks Alina to call the sun, but he helps her activate her powers. When he places his hand on the wrist of a Grisha, I believe it kind of elevates their power, kind of acting as a stimulant or an amplifier, but it's not the actual amplifier that we talked about earlier. She shines her light and it's beautiful and it impresses everybody. And the King Pyotr is so excited and he's like, hurry the fuck up because the sooner we are one country, the better. 
And this is when we see Alina being an icon for these people. And this is the first time we really see Alina being an icon, except Zoya. Zoya's not impressed with her. Zoya's kind of a bitch, but she redeems herself. What's really cool about this episode is you get a glimpse of how the Grisha are trained as well. This really opens up the Grishaverse. Alina attends combat training and she's asked to pick an opponent. So who do you think she chooses? She picks Zoya, who of course is her rival at this moment. Zoya kicks her ass a little too hard and also makes a snide little sexual comment about Mal because remember she tried to get in his pants in the first episode. Alina gets up and punches Zoya as she's unaware so Zoya of course uses her powers to throw her ass to the other side of the ground. This gets Zoya in big trouble. You don't fuck around with the sun summoner Zoya. Alina's also dreaming about a stag which she mentions in her numerous letters to Mal. She explains that this palace is beautiful but it's no different than the orphanage. It's basically a beautiful prison. Speaking of the stag the king's spiritual advisor catches Alina researching the lore of the stag and he wants to help her. He tells her about Bonesmith who made creatures from his fingers and attuned only to Grisha. He then explains that Bagra awaits and that Bagra trains every Grisha to harness their power. He leaves the conversation saying that Alina will suffer more and leads her to a tunnel. Fucking creepy. No thank you spiritual advisor. She finds Bagra who asks her a range of questions. Bagra is probably my favorite character in this entire series. She beats out Jesper by just a smidge. She wants to know if she can summon the power on her own and only come back when she believes in herself because self-confidence is king, especially in YA stories. This of course makes Alina extremely emotional and she just wishes she was back in the first army. At the end of this episode, we see the crows on the train. The conductor drops the bombshell that the train tracks are not complete, but he tries to assure them that it'll be fine. Just don't shift your weight, don't move. You know, no big deal. Suddenly they hear Volcra creatures and the conductor tells Jesper to throw out the goat. But Jesper's a good fucking human and he's not gonna throw the goat because he's a loving creature. As they feel their lives are in grave danger, Jesper finds the confidence to use his pistol to kill all the Volcra because again, I believe he is some sort of Grisha. Also, while dining at the palace, Ivan delivers news from the feared in front. He talks about the number of casualties in the first army. Ivan tells Alina that she should be training every waking moment to take down the fold because of this. In this episode, we really get an idea of how important Alina is to the world. And I feel like this is a threshold episode. What does that mean? I'm not really sure, but the best way I can explain it is I feel like this is the episode where you really step inside the story. I don't know why I'm talking in such a sing-songy voice. I don't know. I need a goat to calm me down. That is my opening breakdown of Shadow and Bone. I'm going to record my episode four through eight breakdowns and thoughts very soon and get that out there. It'll be less congested because I won't need to break down the basics. Even if I got some things wrong, I hope it entertained you. Feel free to correct me. I'm not a Grisha expert. I'm not a stan. I'm still not gonna read the books. Oh, I don't think I ever mentioned why I didn't read the books. I just didn't get into it. I actually picked up King of Scars first, which I don't remember what it has to do with the Grisha verse but I remember the map at the beginning of the book. It was quite boring to me. It felt a little juvenile, Shadow and Bone. And Six of Crows, I liked the characters, but I don't really like heisty things. I don't know. It wasn't my vibe, but it gets a lot of love. I'm probably like the only hate and ass hater out there of Six of Crows. And I'm not even a hater. It's probably a beautiful book. I was just bored. And I'm pretty bored with their storyline. I just don't get it because I love the characters. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense in general. I don't expect you to understand this mess of my brain. Regardless, I hope you enjoyed it or were at least entertained 
entertained. Shout out again to Refinery29 and Mimo Death Books on YouTube for helping me with this deep dive and breaking down the episodes for me in a more concise manner or else I would have spent 15 minutes talking about how cute the goat is. Be sure to follow the pod on Instagram at NCQH Podcast where I share a sprinkle of Netflix news, pictures of my coffee, and updates on episodes. If you want more content from me that's still caffeinated but a different subject matter, be sure to check out my YouTube channel, Coffee Beans and Horror Fiends, where I discuss all things horror. That's at youtube.com slash L-E-A-L-O-C-K-S as in Leah Locks. And today I want to share a website that has resources for nurses. I know things have seemed to simmer down for the general public, but our nurses have been nonstop working through this absolute crazy shit and they deserve so much love. The website nursingworld.org has a plethora of resources, everything from scholarships, teaching resources, research grants, resources for minority nurses, help for planning for your financial future, and of course, resources for the coronavirus. Those specific resources include updates, response funds, and in regards to mental health, they also have a link to free tools that can help with that. I also noticed there were numerous articles like one titled Free Self-Care Course that has multiple episodes on how to deal with different situations unique to your profession. And for those of you who are not a nurse or not a doctor, please, next time you see a medical professional, be sure to thank them for their hard work. They have been putting in heavy duty work during these crazy times and they deserve every bit of love that we can give. Thank you again for listening. Stay caffeinated, stay streaming, stay strong. Stay strong.